Grab your Bibles and turn to Jude. Just read our text for today, and then you can be seated after that. Good morning, by the way. Glad you're here. So this is the last part in this unique letter from Jude as he deals with apostates and false teachers. And so this is kind of a culmination of, of what, what they do and who they are, what it ultimately will end up at. So verse 14 through 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Can I just offer a minute, look up here? Um, Could you use the word more ungodly a little bit more, Jude? And so there's an emphasis there, okay? I think you can see what the point is, is all of this has been leading to what is God going to do? How is God going to deal with those who have been doing all this again? I want to read that again. Look at 15 and hear the emphasis on that. To execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Then he describes them one last time and says, these are grumblers. He's going to talk about how they use their mouth to speak against God. They are grumblers. They are malcontents. Following with their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So as Jude wrote this letter, sometime around AD 65... There was a familiar book that was familiar to both Jews and Christians at the time. It was known as First Enoch. There's another book as well that is known as Second Enoch. They are what is known as the Pseudepigrapha, but neither of them, First or Second Enoch, were written by the biblical Enoch that we will talk about just briefly a little bit um, today which is why they are, were not included in the Old Testament canon. When the Jews put that together, when they put the Old Testament together, they were, not put that, um, they were not put in that, and I'll share a little bit more about that here in just a moment. So these books are known as uh, things in the Pseudepigrapha, which was, if you'll remember, at the end of the Old Testament period, when Malachi, the last book that was written, and until John the Baptist comes upon the scene... We usually refer to this as there was a 400-year period of silence. And this, is, this was a period of time where there were no prophets coming. There were no books that were being written. And so during that period of time, really about 300 years before the birth of Christ, the Jews began to put in writing some of the oral traditions that had come down throughout the centuries that had not been written. And so they began to write some of these things down. Some aspects of this were connected to the biblical Enoch that's found in in the book of Genesis. And so these things were written down for the Jews to begin to study. These are also also considered these works in uh, what's also called the apocryphal works. And so let me just give you a little bit of an idea about these things. And so apocrypha, the apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha 
are terms that were used to label kind of some of the early Jewish um, teachings and writings and even some of that in, in, in aspects of Christianity and some things that were affecting the church most of the time from about the 3rd century um, B.C. until Christ came. So First and Second Enoch are considered both of these kind of books. Neither of them were ever accepted by the Jews as inspired, and they never saw them as an Old Testament book. The Roman Catholics as well, who have more books connected to um, their Bible, don't even have them in the Apocrypha. So when Jude wrote, the Old Testament canon, the books that were going to be in the Old Testament were already decided upon by the Jews um, for several hundred years. But there are some things in them, and particularly something that came from Enoch that he spoke um, before the flood that had been passed down for thousands of years, that had continued to be part of the conversation among the Jewish people that Enoch had preached in his generation before the flood. So a question may come, well, then why, if he didn't write them, and he didn't write them, they were put together, again, um, in this uh, silent period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, then why are they called First and Second Enoch? Well, some of these books that we know about, the Jews, again, they begin to write down some of these oral traditions and other things. And if there was an aspect of one of the famous characters in their history that they had a lot of respect for, um, they put that name on some of the books. And so, so again, Enoch um, was alive pre-flood and was taken from the earth. We'll talk about that here in a moment. So he didn't write this book. So when you hear somebody say First Enoch or Second Enoch, these are, these are not books that he wrote. Um, there are some things that he said that were included when they began, the Jews began to put some of these works together and write them down, and they attached his name um, to them. So during this time period, as I said a while ago, during the Old Testament between Malachi and John the Baptist, the Jews collected some of the aspects of these things. Um, The book of Maccabees, if you've heard of the book of Maccabees before in that period of time, um, this would be considered part of the apocryphal books. So today, 2023, do we have anything left of what would have been considered um, First Enoch? We don't really have anything at all um, about Second Enoch, but we have about a third of what's called First Enoch in the Greek language. It's also in Latin um, and Aramaic. It would have originally been written in Hebrew, and at the time of Jude, it would have been a familiar book to the Jews at that time and also to the first century Christians. So here's what happens with Jude. He makes a prophecy, very fascinating, um, I, Y'all are going to find this fascinating, right? Okay. So he makes a prophecy before the flood about the second coming of Jesus and what would happen in the second coming of Jesus well before Jesus came the first time. Now, God, who holds all of time in his hands and is not confined by things, is able to reveal to his people at any point in time to a prophet what he is going to do in regard to the future. And so what's unique about, about Enoch's prophecy that we will look at today that Jude is going to quote and give us some information in regard to what Christ is going to do when he returns the second time uh, to judge those who are ungodly is this, this is one of the longest lasting 
sermons, preaching aspects, things that we could behold this morning. This was again spoken before the flood. We know in Genesis chapter 3 that in the fall, God comes to the garden. And as God speaks to Adam and Eve and to Satan, he, he speaks about the coming of Jesus in Genesis 3.15. Where he speaks about one who will come and he will put enmity between uh, the woman and the serpent. And the serpent would strike the hill and in this picture of Jesus, would, he would step on the serpent and he would defeat the serpent. So that's a prophecy from God about the coming of Jesus. But with Enoch, what we have is, is the very first person giving a prophecy about the second coming of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we'll, um, we just read it a while ago. Um, let me just tell you, there, um, in the late 1700s, there was a guy in Ethiopia, and he was there. And he was able to find in an Ethiopian Bible aspects of this quote from, and, and, and also some, some copies of, uh, or a copy of First Enoch, and this is this is what was written in the Ethiopic version. It says, "Behold, he will arrive with ten million of his holy ones, in order to execute judgment on all, and he will destroy the wicked ones, and censure all flesh on account of everything they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones have committed against him." And that's from. First Enoch 1 verse 9 that goes all the way back to the intertestamental period when the Jews were putting these things um, together. So that is just a little bit of insight in regard to what Jude's going to read about here in a moment. And we should never shy away from the difficult passages and, and difficult things. Um, in Acts chapter 17, if you'll remember, Paul goes to Athens and he's in Athens and he, he sees this, they've got all these gods on statues and altars all the way through and they've got one at the very end that says to the unknown god and so paul begins to explain to them who the unknown god is and paul even there quotes some secular writers at the time that spoke about things and so so though first enoch is not inspired scripture there was something there that was true and that jude would have been familiar with and he includes in the spirit uses him to include in the writing of the scripture that's here. So last week, we began to look at and began to see kind of the finality of things of the description that Jude is giving in regard to false teachers. He described them as hidden rocks under the water that can destroy a life, just as the iceberg destroyed the Titanic. There are those that can come into a church setting or to a ministry or to a denomination or to a conference, or whatever the, whatever the case might be, and begin to proclaim things that are dangerous and destructive to the church. So therefore, Jude has wrote this letter to say to the church, you are to ever be on your guard, listening and discerning, knowing as you listen to things that are being taught and proclaimed and watching teachers in their lives. But you'll have a great discernment to know what is true and what is not true. As a matter of fact, the church in Corinth had lots of issues. Um, so Paul wrote this really long letter called 1 Corinthians to kind of deal with a number of things. And then he had to write another letter. And we know that he wrote another letter, at least, kind of dealing with some stuff. And, and so in what we call 2 Corinthians, this church was continuing to have some practices within the church that was destructive in nature. 
So one of the things they were doing, they were allowing other people to come into the church to abuse them and to say certain things and to even do some things potentially physically to them and they weren't doing anything about it. So Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. He says, for you bear it if someone comes and makes you make slaves of you or they devour you or they take advantage of you or puts on airs or even strikes you in the face. So the Corinthian church was just allowing these leaders to continue to come into the church and to teach things and to do things. And my point in sharing all that is this, is though here we are in 2023 and we are dealing still today with many of the things that the early church was dealing with. Why are we dealing with them? Because the heart of people is sinful. And if it is not ruled by the Lordship of Christ, and teachers and leaders do not guide people to walk in the truth of God's word, then it's open season inside the church for any and everything to kind of come in. And so this is the heart of Jude loving the church and wanting the church to be prepared for these kinds of things. So it's been several weeks now that we have been examining the nature of those that are false teachers and apostates And they are consumed with seeing their purposes, their way to be at the very forefront of what is happening and taking place in the church. So what we're going to deal with today is becoming more and more of a rarity in in church practices. So I hope today that we will hear Jude's heart as he finishes his description of false teachers and what the ultimate end of them will be. These will be hard and heavy words. But hard and heavy words do not mean that a teacher or a church is unloving. But I recognize how sometimes some of these things that we talk about and have to talk about because of what the scripture teaches, how they may be heard or how they may be received by those who are struggling with some of these things or know of people that we deeply love that are struggling with these kinds of things. To be biblical, church... It means that we say what the scripture says and we have to trust the spirit in its work to know how to work out this truth as people listen to it. God can overcome anything. Just look in the room today. Look what God in all of our lives rescued us from. False ideas about who he is. Bondage that we were in and some kind of sin or some kind of other aspect of things. And so God is able to overcome and do great things with this word. And so our responsibility is to continue to be biblical as the seed falls upon people's hearts and to trust him to do the work that he can do. So today I'm going to teach on judgment and, and it will be heavy because some of us have kids, we have parents, we have spouses, we have coworkers that we have been pleading with the Lord about. And they are living outside of God's heart. They do not know him. They are lost. And they are headed and on the path to a place of judgment when Christ returns. But this is important for us to hear this, to know this. So the subject of judgment doesn't really fit in today's day and time. As there's just continued to be an increasing desire that people just want to hear the good stuff about the faith. And I love the good stuff about the faith, but we also have to love the tough stuff 
that is connected to our faith as well. And many people today have the idea of just keep telling me that I'm loved and that I am the apple of God's eye and that everything is going to be okay and that I can continue to live the way that I live with no ultimate consequences. And if I could tell you that, I would, but I can't tell you that. I can't say that there's not going to be any consequences for living away from God and rejecting Christ because there will be. So the issue for us today and why why it was important for us to study Jude at this point in time in 2023 is that the Bible is not silent on these subjects. God's judgment upon sinners who do not know the Lord are dominant themes in the New Testament. Jesus is the one person who spoke more of hell than anybody else in the New Testament. The New Testament writers deal with the subject of his coming judgment, not just a little bit, but enough that it cannot be ignored, it must be faced, it must be studied, it must be looked at. And any careful reader of the New Testament and teacher of Scripture knows that these themes are present in the books and in the letters of the New Testament. Jesus is going to return. Did you know that? He is going to return. And when he does, one of the very first things that happens is a firm judgment will happen upon his arrival. If you've ever read Revelation 19, he has a sword in his mouth and he will speak and he will slay the nations that have rejected him at that time. So before we get fully into the text, I want you to go to Acts chapter 17 for a moment. And I want to show that this is not just a theme that Jude has for us. But this is also a theme in other places by other writers. Acts chapter 17, we're going to read 29 through 31. All right, here we go, Acts 17, 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's kind of talking about idols here. An image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Now listen to 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So just several ideas here just for a moment. And then we're going to go and look at something in Second Peter. So Paul speaking here says this, listen, God is real. He's not made out of of gold or stone or something else. He is real. He's not made by someone. He is self-existent. He is pre-existent. He's not an image or the art of somebody's imagination. He is real. And, And because he is real and because he is holy, Paul now says this, that the time of ignorance is gone. God had, had and he's still this way. And I, I put this on the, the internal Facebook page this week. I'm amazed at, at, at God's patience. 
his long suffering with the world. That he has that he is continuing to allow an opportunity for people to enter into the kingdom who have rejected him. This moment right now, Christ has not returned. And this means this, that there's an opportunity that today is the day of salvation. And God is calling people to repentance and to come into a relationship with him. And so so Paul says there, listen, that the time of ignorance is gone. There's been a revelation of who Jesus is. It is a time to repent. And the reason this is so critical is that he says this in the first part of verse 31. He says this, don't miss this, that God has a fixed and set day that is established where the world will be judged. Listen to this, by Christ's righteousness, not by America's righteousness, not by man's thought of righteousness, but by God's righteousness. And he gave confirmation that he will bring this about in one of the greatest things that has ever happened, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so Paul says there that the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance of this judgment. Now, if you would, go to your right to Second Peter chapter 2. I want to share one other thing. So Luke records for us what Paul says in Acts 17. Now Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, speaks about the judgment as well. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. This is very encouraging words for those of us who know the Lord so he writes, Peter does, 2 Peter 2, 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So I could go on today and, and I could go on to Old Testament prophets. I could share other aspects um, in the New Testament about the coming judgment that is written by the New Testament writers and even the Old Testament writers. So listen to this, church. Very important before we begin into the text in Jude. There is a day that is coming where judgment will be made by the Lord on the ungodly and on Satan. We are headed to this day as one of the last great events on the calendar. So why? Question to come up. Why is this something we ought to study? Why should we consider this? Why is it valuable for us to know about this as his people? And it's this, because this message is designed to bring about a fear that will lead to repentance. This is coming true one day. Christ will come. He's going to bring a judgment. There will be a finality to that. And everybody who said, well, I'm just going to wait till I get before him. And I'll say, okay, I'm ready. No, no. There's going to be a closing of a door eventually. And the writing about judgment is designed to encourage those who hear this to give deep consideration that there is an offer of life to come to know Jesus. And if 
there is going to continue to be a rejection of Jesus, that there will be a judgment that will come. You remember what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? What do you remember? Judgment. There is a judgment that will come. So I had someone text several weeks ago and very late at night, one of our college students, and asked the question, do you believe that we are close to the end times? And I will say this this morning, we are closer than we have ever been. That's about as far as I'm going to go. But that day is coming. God has been unbelievably patient for 2,000 years. And there will come a day where God, and sometimes I look around at our world today and I'm like, how can he put up with much more? And yet he does. So there are two types of people Jude has been sharing with us that are in and around the church. There are those that will contend and fight for and stand in the truth and desire to walk in the truth. And then there will be people in and around the church that have no interest in the church, that are ultimately attenders, Christ affirmers, but they will be like those in Matthew chapter 7 who did a bunch of stuff for God and they will stand before Jesus one day and he will say, I have no idea who you are. Depart from me for you are an evil doer. So this is a subject, though heavy, is important for us to consider today. So if you would look with me in verse 14. So it was also, Jude writes there, about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So the first thing I just want to briefly touch on this morning is I want to talk about the unrighteous and the righteous before the flood, which is the generation that was connected to Enoch as well as to Noah. In Genesis chapter 4, we learn about an unrighteous line that comes from Cain. We've talked about Cain for Two weeks prior to this, two weeks in a row, we have talked about him. Cain is representative, Jude writes about him, of those who decide to come to God to worship God on their own terms. So God tells Cain and Abel that they are to come and to bring a sacrifice, uh, an offering made to him is to be an animal sacrifice. Cain decides, you know, I'm just going to bring some fruit of the land that I have grown. He was a fruit and vegetable guy, and so he brought some of that to God. His brother Abel brought an animal sacrifice. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but Cain's he did not. He rejected it. And so Cain becomes this example of those who approach God and say, I'm going to do what I, I'm going to approach you the way I want to approach you. I'm going to kind of form a new way, and it's called the way of Cain. And we talked about that for a couple of weeks. Well, the way of Cain, when you look at Cain's line in Genesis chapter 4, is you see the children of Cain continuing to live with a man-centered idea about life and a rejection of God. So eventually, from Cain's line comes a guy named Lamech. And Lamech was the first polygamist. He had two wives. He was incredibly boastful. He kept saying to his wives, listen to me, wives, listen to me, wives, just kind of boasting about himself. And then he boasted to them in verse 23 of Genesis 4 that he, had, he was a murderer and that he was the man who was in power and he had murdered. But then when you get to Genesis chapter 5, you see 
another line that is a godly line. And in that line, the one-seventh from Adam is a guy named Enoch. So if you would, just for a second, turn back to Genesis chapter 5. And I want to show you him and make a couple of comments about him because there's a great contrast here that Jude is making and sharing with us of those who follow God. Genesis 5, verse 18. I don't know what it's like to live 800 years. I can't even fathom that, but we're going to read some of these aspects. So verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So I want to make this just comparison just for a moment. So you have from the line of Cain, a guy named Lamach, who was boastful, prideful, he was a murderer. And then you have from the line of Seth, from Adam, you have those who come that were godly, and you have this guy named Enoch. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about Enoch. And I want to make three just initial statements about him before we get into the details back in Jude, chapter, in Jude verse 14. Here are the principles of Enoch's life. There are three of them. The first one is simply this. He lived to please God, not humanity. So we learn that in his generation, he was a preacher. He was a proclaimer. He was saying this, the Lord is going to come and he's going to come with thousands of his holy ones and he's going to bring judgment. This was his message pre-flood about his generation and what was happening and taking place on the earth. And so, so, so we learn in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 that Enoch pleased God. And when it comes to the two main choices of life that lie before us, It is either going to be about pleasing God or pleasing people. Enoch chose in his generation to please God. He lived in the days when his world was full of wickedness before God. There was little encouragement in his generation. He didn't have a youth group. He didn't have Christian music. He didn't have any of that. And yet he chose in the midst of that, of a world that was spiraling away from God to to walk with them. And so he lived in a way to please God, not worrying about others. He could have easily lived an easier life and a more comfortable life by pleasing people. But he knew that was not living, that living was walking with God and treasuring God. He knows that life would be better if, if he just conformed to the influence of everybody around him, that it could, it could have been easier for him, but that's not what he did he chose another path, and that was the path of walking with God. So he, the scripture tells us that he lived to please God, not people. Secondly, it says that he walked with God. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence because there's so many smart people in the room. 
when you walk with God, what does that ultimately mean and what does it look like? It means that you are going in the same direction as God. You are living in agreement with God, with what He says, with what's written down, with what He has called us to do, who He has called us to be. And so Enoch lived in a way to please God, and because he did that, he, the Scripture says, walked with God. He walked by faith, not by sight. If he had lived just by human reason, he'd have just joined in with his generation, and he would have lived in a safer way, and not preaching about against his generation and what was there. And the third thing about him is this, and this is the amazing one. One day, he's living, thinking about, I'm going to live in my generation to please God. I'm not going to worry about fitting in with my generation. I need to walk in agreement in the direction that God is going. And one day, living sometimes almost a third of what some people lived in Genesis chapter 5 lived. One day he's walking with God, walking in a way pleasing with God, and God just said to Enoch, you can come on up here. It was almost as if God was saying, you get this. And God took him, just reached down and took him from the earth and brought him into God's presence. And Enoch lived in a way, in his generation that way, And he preached against his generation. So in this aspect of things, this this height of unrighteousness that was connected with Cain's line, you have this height of righteousness that is connected with Enoch. Before we get back to Jude, if you would, go ahead and get back to Jude and we're going to get going on that. I want to just say... One other thing about preaching, about what we're doing this morning and what we will do next week and what we will do until we are not here anymore. As we have walked through Jude in the last couple of months, we have been forced to deal with some areas more forcefully because of what was in the text in Jude. At times, I honestly know this, that true biblical teaching again, does not sound as loving as some desire it to be, and yet there is no choice but to be clear in our task to be faithful concerning the issues and the doubts even that are present in our day about God and to God. So I press on, we press on, at aiming to be faithful to what is in the Scripture and wanting to be loving to those who don't believe and who need to repent and they need to come to Jesus. Ultimately, only He is the one and His truth that can set people free. I read something this week that stood out to me. It's by a guy named J.D. Greer. He's a pastor. And Listen to what he wrote. He said, John the Baptist stood before Herod and his generation And it confronted Herod on the sinfulness of sleeping with his brother's wife. A sexual promiscuity readily accepted in Herod's day, in John's day, within the royal society. In response, Herod chopped off John's head. Matthew tells us this comment is what provoked the execution order ultimately and put John 
in prison. And ultimately, Herod's new wife, that was his brother's wife, did not like what John was saying, and all of that was there. J.D. Greer writes this. He said, one can only imagine what some, some pastors in, might say to John in his day. Oh, John, if you just downplay this issue or just punted this issue or just held off talking about it and had been neither explicitly affirming or not affirming of open marriage, you wouldn't have only gone, John, you could have kept your ministry. You would have also kept your head. You might have even eventually won over the heart of Herod and his court. And yet your insistence on preaching about sexual sin forfeited your audience with Herod. Do you know what Jesus' verdict of that was? He said in Matthew eleven eleven that John was the greatest prophet that had ever lived. And this is the way that he taught. This is the way that John lived. So one of the reasons the book of Jude is so incredibly relevant is because of the decadence of our day today. That we need to be reminded that all around us are proclamations and teachings that we have to make about people that we deeply love, right? We all know people that are away from the Lord, that are just openly defying him. And our heart is broken of that, and yet it doesn't keep us and should not keep us from proclaiming the truth about the Scripture. So let's look at these things now, and we're going to motor scooter through these things. Number, number two, the unrighteous are going to face the coming Lord. So Jude, speaking in his generation, the second part of verse 14, he prophesied and said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. So question is asked, who are these holy ones? Well, I think it has to be two specific things. One, we know in Revelation 19 that when he returns, he's on a white horse. Have you ever read Revelation 19? It is so majestic of who he is. And he's coming back, and he's coming back with those that have gone before him in heaven. He's coming back with the believers. We also know this from multiple other scriptures. Not only is he going to return in his second coming with those who have died and had faith in him and are in heaven, he's also coming back with the angels. So when Jude speaks about this, and, and, and as Enoch was preaching about this, He is preaching before the first coming about the second coming. And he's saying this when Jesus returns to bring judgment on those who have rejected him, he will come with his people and he will come with the angels. You see, Jesus is not going to allow the wicked just to continue to destroy the earth forever. So he will return. And when he returns to establish his kingdom, he will make things right. And he will bring about a judgment. He is coming again. He is coming again. Henry Ironside, the great preacher, was preaching one day on the second coming at a meeting. And as he was closing in prayer, he heard the shuffle of a woman going down the aisle and out the door of the building. At the end of the service... 
Ironside went to the back door to greet people that were inside to go outside, and he saw this woman just pacing back and forth at the front of the building and was muttering to herself, how dare he say that? How dare he pray such a prayer? And he tried to remember what he'd even prayed at the end of the meeting, and it simply said this, he remembered, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And as he questioned her, she said, I I don't want him to come quickly. I don't want him to come now, because if he came now, he would break in on all my plans that I have. Ironside said to her, my dear young woman, Jesus is coming whether you want it or not. He is coming. And I think his coming should motivate us as his people to be more engaged in the gospel. So I just say this, the unrighteous, they will face the coming of the Lord. Third thing this morning is this. And uh, because Jude was repetitive, I decided I could be repetitive. The ungodly are ungodly, and there is a judgment that awaits them. So verse 15, when Jesus comes, it says it's to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners say against him. So let me just go through these real quick. The ungodly will receive God's judgment. It says there that when he comes, he will execute judgment on all. Now, one of the most, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, when I'm done and when I'm, what I'm about to say here, you should say amen. And when you say amen, it needs to be out loud. It's, it sounds like this, Amen. Because I know most of you, and you know me, one of the most amazing realities of our life is this, is that we are covered right now by the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Because if we are not, then we have to stand before him in all of the awfulness of our sin. What an amazing reality that comes to his children. And he's not only has he done that, but he's put his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. But that is not the case for the ungodly. The ungodly will receive God's judgment. It will be personal judgment upon their life. It will also be a universal judgment upon all those who have rejected the Lord from the very beginning. And those who do not know him will not escape the judging arm of the Lord. Jeremiah writes about it, 17.10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So not only will the ungodly receive God's judgment, but secondly with that, the ungodly commit, they get this judgment because the ungodly commit ungodly deeds and they, are, they don't come to faith, they don't believe in Jesus. And so in this phrase, the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, this word convict means to bring to light things that have been hidden. So when Christ comes, he's going to bring to light everything that has been hidden. Now that's not us. We are... Again, 
I hope you say amen here in a second. We are going to be, there's going to be a judgment upon believers' deeds. How we lived our lives inside of this life, Paul writes in Corinthians, that we are building a house. And we are building this house with the right kind of materials that will last, or we are building inside of our life a house that's going to burn up at the judgment. And Paul writes there that some people are going to get in by the old nursery rhyme, by the skin of their chinny-chin-chin. They're going to get in because of the blood of Jesus. But there's not going to be, there's going to be reward of heaven, but there could be this great reward that comes because of the, the, the life that we build connected to the truth. But when Jesus comes, he's going to bring to light Everything that the ungodly have said and everything that they have done, everything will be exposed. And the idea is there is that will not that will be a disgraceful moment, a shameful moment for them. So the ungodly will receive God's judgment. Secondly, the ungodly commit ungodly deeds. Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, for God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil, we, as his people, will not be judged for our sin because Christ has paid for our sin. But we will be judged for how we lived. And that judgment of how we lived is not going to determine whether we get into the kingdom of heaven or not. That's not based on our works. That's based on his merit and his work and what he has done. But do not for a minute think that it's not important for us to live obedient to God, to do good works, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be a God seeker. The word deeds here just means this, works of ungodliness. That's what it means in the Greek. So the ungodly will receive God's judgment. The ungodly commit ungodly deeds. Thirdly, the ungodly deeds are committed in an ungodly way. It's Jude's emphasis there. The meaning of the verse is clear. They did not ever really consider walking with God, those who were ungodly. They may have heard the truth, may have been in the church, but they never really considered walking in the path of his words. It seems more and more as if we were living in a Romans world, Romans 1 world, would you agree with me? Just the, just the rejection of God and what we were seeing around us, particularly in the West, Paul writes this in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We live in such a day where the truth is put down, it is rejected, it is not followed, but that is not to be the case for us. We are to be those that walk in the truth. You likely remember this, but let me remind you of these great words. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The ungodly commit deeds, and they commit these deeds in an ungodly way, but that is not to be the way of his people. We are to be differently. Here's the fourth thing. The ungodly speaking against God in an ungodly manner. So at the end of 15, Jude writes, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
I know that you're probably like me. You get fired up on, during the week when you watch a news program. You listen to something that's said about Christianity, about the unborn, about some other issue in the day. But I just want to remind us this morning, the ladies on The View are going to have to stand before Jesus one day. Bill Maher is going to have to stand before Jesus one day. Ricky Gervais is going to Charlemagne to God. All of these people are going to have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account. And oh, they'll, they'll continue to mock him here. And I want to tell you how loving God is. He allows them in their mockery to remain on the planet. But there's coming a day when all of this ungodly things that the ungodly speak about the majesty and the glory of Jesus, he will put a stop to it. It will be over. So the ungodly speak against God, Jude says, quoting Enoch in a godly, ungodly way. This word harsh that Jude uses here in Verse 15 means to harden and dry up. Here's the picture. Just think of the shows. Think of the Grammys. I didn't watch the Grammys. I don't, I don't watch those things. I always read about them afterwards. All of these musicians who get a earthly trophy give thanks to God on that platform, and yet all of the lyrics that they've won that trophy mock God. And yet they stand on a platform and acknowledge him. And those who continue to do that for the rest of their lives, Jude says, their hearts harden and dry up. They are dead in their heart. Last point this morning. The ungodly have devastating character flaws that are connected with their mouth. And so in verse 16, every one of these are connected to the tongue and against God. They're grumblers, malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The word grumbler means one who complains in great discontent. We all know someone like that. We probably have somebody a bit in, their, in, the, in our lives like that. They just grumble and complain. They'll have a day that's 70 degrees. I, in personal opinion, 70 degrees and sunny is the perfect day on the planet. Don't argue with me about this. I'm right. But you'll meet people who go, gosh, why can't it be 58? Why can't it be 80? And they're never happy about anything. And they become those who grumble. There's a progression to this. So those who grumble, they become malcontent. This is what malcontent means. It is a person who is not only a grumbler, but they are dissatisfied and rebellious. This is someone who never stops complaining about something about God and God's 
common grace that He gives. You know this, right? I hope you know this. That today on the planet, God gives common grace to everybody who's here. If they're breathing, He's given common grace that they are breathing, they are alive. So God daily blesses those who mock them with a common grace that He gives. But this is what a malcontent does. It's the picture of someone who's given a Coke and complains that it's not a cherry Coke. This is someone who's offered tomato soup, but the tomato soup doesn't have enough tomatoes or it has too many tomatoes. These are people that are never happy about anything and will never give God credit for anything in their lives, but they will, and for much of their lives, they mock Him and God gives common grace to them, and yet they're angry at Him and never recognize that He has actually been good to them and long-suffering with them in the way that they are, and they will never give God credit. And they will speak to make sure that everybody knows that God is never right in any aspect of what He does and who they are. They mock His goodness when many of them have good in their lives. In the context here, they live discontented to the point where nothing is good. Spurgeon said of these people this, You know the sort of people alluded to here. Nothing ever satisfies them. They are discontented even with the gospel. The bread of heaven must be cut into three pieces and served on dainty napkins or else they cannot eat it. And very soon their soul hates even this light bread. There is no way by which a Christian man can serve God so as to please them. They will even pick holes in every preacher's coat. And if the great high priest himself were here, they would find fault with the color of the stones of his breastplate. And this is those that lead the abortion industry. This is those that are mutilating and pushing laws to mutilate children. This is our world today. And it's hard for us, let's just be honest, it's hard to to live in a world in which these things are present. And sometimes it feels like we just can't do anything about it at all. And it forces us to our knees. It sometimes gets a righteous indignation and anger in our spirit about these things. And yet in the midst of that, I want to remind you and I, such were some of us. And so we want to plead for those who are malcontents and hate God and mock God with their voice that they would come to know him. They're loudmouth boasters. This word just simply means this something that swells up to a really large place. So I want to close with this with a few takeaways today. When we get into Jude next week, it's going to be a, um, a little, it's going to be softer and practical. So what do we do now? And so we will look at. Uh, um, we 14 to 16 today. We'll look at uh, 17 through 23 next week. And this call to persevere. How do we live in a world like this where all these things are around us? So I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 23 for a moment. And we're going to close right there. 
So I've got three takeaways. The last one will be found in Matthew 23. First takeaway is this. It's just a question to ask all of us, especially I'm asking it myself. Are we ready to maintain spiritual stability as things move closer to the end? That means to continue to know what God's word is and to continue to walk in obedience with God. So are we ready to maintain a spiritual stability as things move closer to the end? Secondly, are you and I living in a way that's anticipatory of the second coming? That we're living ready, that we've got our Remember the parable of the virgins. They have their oil and they, they've got their lamps. And what do they, they have them ready. They have them ready and they have the oil ready to burn. Are we, are we living ready and anticipating the second coming of Jesus? And I've been over the last several weeks, been meditating a bit on three verses in Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is Jesus' woes to the scribes and the Pharisees who were deeply hypocritical. And yet in the midst of this, um, there's a great council that I think Jude has been calling us to that's a part of our philosophy here at LifePoint that LifePoint calls all of us to. Our elders do this. Our life group leaders do this. Student ministry, children's ministry, this is the call upon our lives. We ultimately, listen, um, I want to encourage you to listen to as much Christian preaching and teaching as you can. And yet at the same time, I want to remind you that ultimately we only have one teacher. And it's not, it's not a godly person, it's the Lord himself. Because there's a danger when we just listen to the same voice over and over again, again, we just begin to regurgitate and it's not, not something we've come to know. It's something that we just have learned the lingo. And let's be honest, all of us Christians, if you're around church, we have a lingo. And we know how to say it. And it kind of all sounds the same. And so I love what Jesus says here. Look with me in verse 8. We're going to read verse 8 through 10. But you are not to be called rabbi. Don't don't give yourself this title. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So I just want to close with that thought today is reminding you and I ultimately who is our teacher? Jesus is. So we learn from one another and I've learned from you. I hope you've learned from me. We need to continue to practice that. But the one voice that we need to know and the one who needs to be instructing us more than anybody else is that we have one teacher, one instructor And that is he who is the Christ, he who is the Son of God. And what he thinks matters more than anything else. And the only only way to know what he thinks is to practice what? 
this. We have to know the word. We have to know the word. Jesus said this, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. And this is what will help us navigate these days in which we live. Let's pray.